The choir is going to reserve seating because we're going to bring them back at the end of the service for an encore. And uh, they're excited about what they're going to share with us to close our service today. But, but before then, we have a bit of a uh, perfect storm has kind of happened this week as I thought about what to say this uh, Sunday morning. If you know me at all, you know that I love the gospel. And I have loved the songs this morning because they have been so gospel-centered. You also know that I'm a teacher at heart, and I love to ask questions. And finally, if you know me at all, you know that I don't have a sentimental bone in my body. (laughs) And so you bring those things together, and it's kind of the perfect storm this morning of a non-traditional, non-sentimental, gospel-saturated sermon that will follow a structure of questions and answers. I want us to probe deeply this morning into seeking to answer a singular question, which is the title of the sermon. Why did God become man? Why did God become man? Now, certainly you don't need to try to answer out loud, but how would you answer that question? What is going through your mind right now as an attempt to explain that? Anselm of Canterbury, he was one of the famous church fathers, famous theologians. His writings are still being translated and printed and published a thousand years after his life. Anselm was born in 1033. He wrote a treatise by this title. It's a hundred pages long. It has 50 some odd chapters. My answer will be a little shorter this morning. It will be a short answer and then we'll unpack it. And I'll borrow from another church father, Augustine, a quote that he gave in a different context as my answer to this question. Why did God become man? Because God gives what God requires. God gives what God Requires. Well, that leads to the next question. What did God require? What did God require? Let's begin this way to answer that question. God is utterly holy and righteous. God is pure. He is light. And in God, there is no darkness at all. And so what God requires of us, his moral creatures made in his image, what God requires of us is nothing less than and nothing short of perfect, flawless conformity to his own holiness. When we ask, what did God require? We must begin with God as the standard, not man. Not a comparison of myself to you or you to me, but of all of us to the eternal, infinitely holy God. What God requires of us then is the perfect conformity to his own holiness. This holiness has been expressed in his moral law. That law is written on your heart. And that law has been summarized in what has come to be known as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our treatment of God, our worship of God, our 
reverence before God. You shall, well, we'll read them in a moment. The next six, the next six deal with our treatment of each other. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Then as we begin this morning to answer the question, what did, why did God become man? Because God gives what God requires. Well, then what did God require? Exodus chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel has been rescued through the ten plagues, through the Passover, through the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian armies. They're now an infant nation about to get their constitution from their creator and savior. God is about to give them their their guardrails for life, their boundaries so that they can have a blessed and good life. And he reminds them that I am your savior, God. I called you out of Egypt. I called you out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So those are the first four that relate to our relationship with God. And now the final six relate to our relationship with each other. Of the first four, three were negative prohibitions and one was a positive commandment. Of the next six, one is a positive commandment and the rest are negative prohibitions. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It was that final commandment, commandment number 10 there in verse 17 That God would use in Paul's life to show Paul how much of a sinner he really was. Despite all of Paul's good works, despite all of his synagogue attendance, despite all of his religiosity, God used that 10th commandment, you shall not covet, to undo the apostle Paul. Here's what he said by way of autobiography in Romans 7. He said, Quote, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. 
For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting or lust of every kind. Paul was moral on the outside, a law keeper on the outside. He seemed like a good person on the outside. But his testimony to us today is this law exposed his heart was full of coveting, full of lust, full of greed, full of more, more, more. And Paul makes this very important statement for us this morning. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And so then I ask, can we come to know the Savior except through knowing our sin? And can we know our sin except from a comparison to the holy standard? The reason you and I do not lament our sin the way we should is simply because we're not comparing it to God. That's why we're able at times to laugh at sin and sweep sin under the rug and act like there are sins that don't really matter. And when we do that, when our heart goes in that direction, we've just simply lost sight of the exalted nature and being of God himself. As one who is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, a God who cannot look with favor upon sin. Well, if this wasn't hard enough and, and bad enough for us. Jesus comes along, the lawgiver and the teacher and the explainer of the law. He comes along and he applies these Ten Commandments and other commandments of God to the very heart. So go with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 as the great teacher now, the great preacher in probably the greatest sermon. Applies God's law to the hearts of people. Matthew chapter 5, we will pick it up in verse 17. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came, Jesus said, to abolish the law or destroy it or, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and in those days the people held them out as the most righteous of all. These were the holy men. These were the religious men. He says, if your righteousness doesn't go past their righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he begins in verse 21 to take the law and apply it to the heart. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, whoa, what authority there. He's just quoted the Ten Commandments. God gave him Mount Sinai. And now he, as the God man says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. He shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool, he shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Drop down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He doesn't mean this literally. He means this figuratively. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to to get radical with sin, to drastically and dramatically change your ways. Look at verse 31. He's going to continue to take the law and the commandments. It was said, verse 31. Verse 33, again, you have heard. Verse 38, you have heard. Verses 43, then we'll finish the section. You have heard, verse 43, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Those were the traitors of the land. They had sold out to the Roman Empire to tax and overtax their own people. They were despised. They were the lowest of the low. And he says even the tax collectors love those who love them. 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, the people outside the nation of Israel without a knowledge of God, don't they greet their brothers? Verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Complete. Perfect conformity to the letter and the spirit of the law of God. One day Jesus was teaching and someone came up to him and and said, will you tell us which is the great Commandment. You know, you had the ten and, and there were some 600 other commandments that the Israelites were trying to get their head around and trying to obey. And, and so someone came to Jesus as the great teacher and said, teacher, tell us what is the great commandment? And without missing a beat, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength and all of your mind. Jesus summarizes all of God's law in that statement. And he goes on and he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's taken the 600 some odd commands, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and he summarizes them further in only two commands. This is all you've got to worry about this morning. (laughs) This is the standard of God expressed to you this morning. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Compare yourself then to that standard. And what, dear friend, is the conclusion? The conclusion is, I am sunk. The conclusion is failure. F. I am undone and so are you. That's the conclusion as we compare ourselves to the standard of God. 
That's why Paul would say in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. All have gone astray. All have fallen short of this standard and this glory of God. Unless you can say that without one interruption in your entire life of self-consciousness, self-awareness, the knowledge of right and wrong, unless you can say without one interruption that you have always loved God with your entire being without a moment of not doing that, and unless you can say you have always been selfless and never selfish, then you and I are undone by this law. Imagine going into a gym and you're going to practice your free throws. You warm up a little bit and then you toe the line, standing 15 feet away from a rim that is 10 feet high. And you're going to shoot 100 shots at that hoop, at that standard. You're only 15 feet away and it's only 10 feet high. And did you know that you can take two basketballs and place them side by side in a basketball rim? I mean, this shouldn't be that difficult. There's no crowd. There's no distractions. No one's screaming. No one's trying to make you miss. It's just you and the ball and the standard. And I'll be there to rebound for you and throw them back so that you don't even have to chase down the shots. And then something really amazing happens. You find a rhythm and you make the first 10 in a row and then 20 and then 50 in a row. You're in the zone. You could shoot this thing with your eyes closed and swish time after time. You have now made 99 shots in a row. You catch the ball for shot number 100 and you had at that moment just the slightest bit of relaxation. And you said to yourself, I've got this. And you release shot number 100 with perfect form. And it just grazes front iron, back iron, front iron, and out. And you say, it was halfway down. And then you go, but it's okay. It's all right. I did make 99 out of 100 after all. Someone called the local newspaper. This was an impressive feat. Do you understand that if this was God's law, 99% is failure? Do you understand that with that last miss, you just booked your reservation in hell? James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. James 2 there explains why that is, because the whole thing came from God, came from the character of God, the person of God. The whole thing reflects who God is. One, he didn't even say sin there. He didn't even say transgression. He didn't even say fall. He just says stumbles. Let's go back to the summary then. You shall love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's your mind. Emotions and will and all your soul, that's your life and all your mind, that's your thoughts and all your strength, that's your body, that you're getting up and, and pursuing God with your physical strength. And you shall love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? That's everyone. 
shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Beloved, that's the speed limit. That's the moral code of conduct. That's the standard. That's the that's the rim that's 10 feet high and 15 feet away. And you can't miss. You can't miss even once. You understand that. And, and if you do miss and you made 99 and you miss number 100, you don't get to try again. You don't get to start over. Well, give me one more shot. I think I can do this. There are no second chances. And so what is the verdict then? We ask the question, what does God, what does God require? What is the verdict? I'll paraphrase from Paul. The verdict is all are under the power of sin. All are unrighteous and self-seeking. All have turned aside. All have become useless. All have done bad because they are bad. All are corrupt. All are dead in their sins. All are liars at heart. All are born without the fear of God. And all mouths are shut as the law of God brings the knowledge of sin. All mouths are shut, closed. Except one. Except one mouth is not shut. There is one who is not convicted. There is one who is not condemned. There is one who the law of God did not bring a knowledge of sin to his heart and soul. There is one who never sinned. Why? Why is there one who never sinned? Because God gives what God requires. The story of Christmas is the story of Jesus. And it is the story of God giving to the world what God requires of the world. God required a complete, perfect conformity to his moral standard. So he gave it in the person of Christ. God required sinless perfection for a human being to earn heaven. So he gave it. Jesus is the one. Jesus, the second or last Adam, who was born under the law. Jesus, who lifted the law. That soul-crushing burden. He lifted it and he carried it to the very last breath of his life. And he had to do so to be our Savior. It was as if Jesus was, was born. He came of age. He came to that place of accountability where he knew the difference between right and wrong. And he was accountable before God. And it, it was at that point that it was like they put a barbell on his back. And they just slid a couple of five pound weights on the barbell and they said now start walking with that and as he went on in his life it went from level to an incline and as he went on they kept adding weights put another plate on put another 45 on and it just kept going like that all the way to the very end of his life to the cross as he faced increasingly more difficult tests of his obedience bearing the weight of the law all the way to calvary Imagine and consider, not imagine, just consider for a moment that our Lord Jesus Christ never committed a sin of commission. He never intentionally, deliberately transgressed the law of God or violated the will of God. He never moved outside of humble submission and obedience to everything God wanted him to do and say. And consider for a moment that our Lord Jesus never once committed a sin of omission. And this is what just kind of blows my mind. 
There's sins of commission. Those are the things we do that are wrong. But there's sins of omission. Those are the things that we should have done that we didn't do. Jesus never had one of those either. That means he had no sinful thought, no sinful word and no sinful deed. And he never once failed to think or to say or to do the right thing. I mean, I'm always lamenting in my life because I think to say or do the right thing after the fact. <laughs> like, oh, so slow to get it. Well, he never had that feeling. This is mind boggling to me. That he always thought exactly as he should and always said what he should have said or held back what he shouldn't have said. And he always did the right thing. There was never a sin of omission. I mean, he was growing up as a kid. He had friends. He had little brothers. Perhaps someone kicked him in the shin. He didn't kick him back. He didn't say anything. He didn't even think it. He didn't even think ill when he got kicked in the shin. Well, he went to work. He was a carpenter. He worked with stone. He worked with wood. Surely he he must have busted a knuckle, hit a thumb. Surely he had a customer that didn't pay or a customer that changed the, the specs on what he wanted built or co-workers who were lazy. Surely he was faced with everything that you and I are faced with in our work. Not once did he ever sin. And now he grows up and he's a young man. And now all of his friends are starting to get married. But that's not God's will for his life. But not once did he ever sink into a moment of self-pity. Not once did he ever doubt God's good, holy and perfect will for his life or God's timing. Not once did he ever begin to doubt God in those moments. And now he's 33 years old and he's never wronged any man on the planet. He's only come to do good. He's only come to give his life away. And now they're nailing him to a cross that's deserved, uh, that is reserved for criminals and Roman criminals. It's really rare for a Jewish person to be crucified. Here he is, the middle of three, and they're nailing him to a cross. And even then, he says, Father, forgive them. Even then, there's no sin of commission or omission. Let's unpack this a little bit because it is the glorious good news of the gospel for you and me this morning. As we come face to face with the mirror of God's law, we need to hear these truths this morning. Jesus, the Israelite, was born under Israel's law. He towed the line and he hit 100 out of 100. All net, every shot. The one who would bring heart circumcision himself was circumcised the eighth day by his godly parents. The one who, as to his deity, knew all things, would learn the Torah at his local synagogue. And he would memorize the Psalms like everyone else. Have you ever considered that the Passover lamb himself ate the Passover lamb? The only man who was unleavened by the leaven of sin would keep the feast of unleavened bread. The cornerstone of the spiritual temple would himself faithfully worship God at the temple. The exalted son of God would honor his earthly father and mother. The sinless son of God would obey his sinful parents. The one without need of cleansing would be baptized to fully identify with his filthy people. The one who is our Sabbath rest, who is 
Lord of the Sabbath, would himself do good on the Sabbath. And the only human who has ever lived that deserved the love of God and deserved his neighbor to love him would love the Lord his God with all his heart, all his mind, all his life, and all his strength. And he would love his neighbor as himself even to his last breath. Why? Because God gives what God requires. You see, Jesus is our proxy. Jesus is our stand-in. Jesus is our substitute who would bear the weight of the standard of God. It's like we're actors in this dramatic movie. And there's a chase scene and it calls for us to run from the bad guys and they get us hemmed in to where we only have one place of escape. And it is a tight rope walk over a pool of shark infested waters. And now the bad guys are closing in and we have only cho- one choice but to begin that walk. And at that moment, the director says, cut, call in the stunt double. Bring the stunt double to the tightrope. And they bring a person who it's remarkable how much he looks like you. And he's dressed exactly as you are dressed. And from a distance, you can't even tell the difference between the star and the stunt double. But there is one great difference, isn't there? What is the difference? He can actually do it. He can walk across the tightrope without falling off. Jesus is the stunt double. The director says, cut, call in the replacement. Let him take all the risk and let him do what you cannot do. We could call it gospel welfare. Jesus worked his fingers to the bone so you and I wouldn't have to lift a finger to be justified before God. This is the ultimate income redistribution as the one who is wealthy becomes poor so that the poor become rich. So let's recap. God required perfect conformity to his own holy nature. You and I couldn't if we would and we wouldn't if we could. We were both unable and unwilling. And so God provided a stand in. God provided the only one who would be willing and able. But there's still a problem, isn't there? We got the standard that we have to meet. And now Jesus has come and he's lived our our life in our place and he's met that standard. But there's still a problem because you and I have got all of our misses out there. We didn't go 99 for 100, did we? We got tons of misses. There were lots of rebounds. We've got lots of sin that is just kind of hanging out there. What's going to happen with all of that sin? What does God require for us not meeting his standard? In fact, violating his standard, abusing his standard, trampling, trampling all over his standard and transgressing it from A to Z. What does God require for that? And the answer is he requires a perfect payment of death. A perfect payment of death. Paul says the wages of sin is death. There must be death. It can be no other way. Let me illustrate using a couple of books of the Bible. The book of Exodus. Let's summarize it this way. God saves his people and then he says, here's your good law. 
to live your life. Here's my loving boundaries for your life. And then we come to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is God saying, here is a bloody provision for when you fail to keep my good law. I gave you a good law in Exodus, and now here's the provision when you can't keep it. Leviticus shouts to us over and over and over again, you shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And Leviticus shouts, you are not holy. You are not. So bring this lamb, bring this bull, bring this goat, bring this dove, shed blood, take life. Bloody death then would be required to temporarily cover their sins, not permanently atone for them, not appease the wrath of God forever, but a temporary payment. A payment that could not be permanent and a payment that could never, ever be sufficient. It would be like you or I owing a creditor one million dollars. And we decide in all of our wisdom that we're going to write twenty five dollar checks each month to just keep us out of collections. <laughs> Let's just buy some time. That's all those sacrifices were doing. They were just buying some time. They were just trying to keep the people of Israel out of collections from a holy God. The blood of goats and bulls would never be enough because it was man who sinned, not the animals. And so sin had to be paid for by a man. Adam and his children had rebelled. And so the last Adam would have to be sacrificed in their stead. Only a person fully human then would suffice. Not appear human, not be an angel in, hum, in human form temporarily, but one who took on human form forever, fully human, with all of our weaknesses and all of our creaturely needs. Except this one would be without sin. The hymn writer said, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. God requires then a perfect payment for every sin of every human being ever committed. This payment will either be in the lake of fire forever because it can never be perfect and it can never be complete there in the lake of fire. Because the person paying it is not perfect and complete and they're not paying it in a perfect way. And so it must go on forever. Or this payment that is required of every sin of every human that has ever been committed, committed can be paid by Jesus and Jesus alone on the cross through his death, through his shed blood. And that is because his payment was perfect. It was complete and it was accepted by God because he was fully God and he was fully man. The Bible says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. And we know that Jesus is the only one who has risen again, never to die again. Jesus has been raised from death on the third day. And so there is no one else. There's no one else I can offer you here this morning. There's no other good news. There's no other path. There's no one else who put the barbell on and carried it to Calvary as plate after plate after plate was added. The burden that crushes you and me into the dust of the ground. And there's no one else who then as a sinless person could go to the cross and bear our sins away. 
and pay that perfect and final penalty that God required, the penalty of death. So why did Jesus die? Because God gives what God requires. God offered him up. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law tells us you deserve to be crucified for offending such a holy and loving God. And the gospel tells us Jesus was crucified in your place, though he never offended this holy and loving God. The one is bad news. The other is the good news. So in Jesus and only in Jesus, God gave what God required. He gave an obedient last Adam who would swish every shot. And he gave us a sinless sacrifice whose death would appease God's anger and turn it into favor for every time that we fell short. The only question that is left this morning for you to consider is will you receive the gift of heaven? That's the only question left that matters. On December 18th, 2016, as you sit here today under the gaze of a holy God who knows your every sin, and knows your heart, knows your thoughts, knows everywhere you've been, knows everything you've said, knows everything you've done, as you sit under His gaze, as you've reflected on the law of God from the Word of God, the only question that matters is will you gladly, humbly, joyfully receive the gift that God is wanting to give you? And that gift is a person. That gift is Jesus Christ. Receive Christ and you receive forgiveness. Receive Christ and you receive eternal life. Receive Christ and you receive reconciliation with God and peace with God. But say no to Christ. Push Christ away. Disbelieve that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And remain in that until you die. And I promise you this morning, and I warn you this morning, you will face the lake of fire where you will pay for every sin you've ever committed forever and ever. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the one and only one who can give you life and life eternal. Let's pray. Father. No man can save another man. It takes God. And as you give what you require, we would ask you this morning to give conviction of sin. Give this morning, Lord, the gift of repentance. Give this morning the gift of faith. Give this morning, Lord, open eyes and open ears so that a sinner can come home and Know the love of God expressed through Christ so that a sinner can know Christmas as it was meant to be. <laughs> so that we can know your peace and joy and comfort that we've spoken of this morning so that we can not only have peace with God, but have the peace of God. 
Lord, it's our prayer, it's our plea, it's our cry this morning that our children would be saved, that our friends here would be saved, that every member of this church would be saved. All to the glory of the law keeper and the sin bearer who has risen forevermore. We celebrate him this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.